Well, hello, and you are listening to the Jazz Focus. My name is John Clark. Welcome back. Hope you've been enjoying these jazz podcasts where we are focusing on some sort of small, limited element of jazz recording history, some of the cobwebby corners. And uh, today's topic is going to be a great, uh, I don't know about a great, but certainly a very effective blues singer named Maggie Jones. She was a singer in the classic blues era of the 1920s, one of the many women, African-American women, who were enlisted, hired, contracted, what have you, to make records uh, following the success of Mamie Smith's Crazy Blues in 1920. And Mamie uh, Smith really opened the floodgates for uh, classic blues singers. I've done a podcast and several shows on Bessie Smith, of course, the greatest of the classic blues singers, but I wanted to do something on someone maybe not quite so well known, and Maggie Jones fits the definition. The reason I picked her was uh, in reading some other things about classic blues. Louis Armstrong, who accompanied her on a couple of sessions, which we will be hearing coming up, uh, said later in life that the records he made with Maggie Jones were his favorite blues accompaniments. And considering the fact that he accompanied Bessie Smith and Ma Rainey and lots of other singers as well from that period, that's uh, pretty high praise from Louis. He didn't necessarily say she was the best blues singer, but he thought that the accompaniments came off the best, and the records he uh, took great pleasure in hearing much later in life. And so that sort of set me on a a path of listening to Maggie Jones and listening to what uh, she had to offer. So she was born about 1894 in a place called Hillsboro, Texas, and she was originally known, or professionally known, as Faye Barnes, and it's a little unclear if that was her real name, her birth name, or if that was just a stage name. A lot of the information about Maggie Jones is kind of uh, shrouded in mystery. Um, She was not uh, a terribly well-known singer, actor, what have you. Uh, Her career in New York City lasted really less than 10 years. She apparently was musically trained to some degree. She played piano on her first test recording, for Victor in 1923, she uh, accompanied herself on piano, a tune called Stop Wasting My Time, although it's never been discovered. It was a test that uh, she was apparently rejected uh, for in, on the Victor label. Her first release studio recording came for Black Swan, the re- record label that was founded by Harry Pace and W.C. Handy. Uh, it was an all-black recording label. It was devoted to producing music by African-American artists, initially concert music, classical music, but they found pretty quickly that the blues and jazz and pop music sold a lot better, so they shifted over to that. And uh, they advertised themselves as, quote, all colored, unquote. Uh, Even the producers, the accompanists, the musicians, the financial backers, um, the owners, everyone was African-American, and they were trying to... uh, publicized themselves that way to to get the the market share of the African-American audience, which had been proven to have been considerable after Mamie Smith's success. This recording, or the first recording that Faye Barnes slash Maggie Jones did in August of 1923, must have been one of the last ones that uh, Black Swan produced, because shortly thereafter they went bankrupt and into receivership, and Harry Pace sold their catalog to Paramount Records, and many of the Earlier Black Swan recordings came out on the Paramount label. So we're going to uh, 
hear a few tunes right now by Maggie Jones or Faye Barnes, if you choose. The first one is a little bit up for uh, discussion. Uh, during the 1920s, the early 1920s, Maggie Jones came to New York City in 1922, uh, as far as we know, is the first time, and she was singing on the Black Vaudeville stage and different uh, performance opportunities that way until about 1926. And that essentially encompasses most of her recording career from 1923 up until about 1928 or so. After that, she went with some higher profile shows. She was with the Hall Johnson Choir for a while. She uh, participated in Lou Leslie's Blackbirds shows in 1928. She uh, sang and danced with Bill Robinson. So she was fairly well known uh, for a time anyway. And uh, during that time is when she made her recordings. This first one was done with Fletcher Henderson, and it's credited to Faye Barnes with Fletcher Henderson's orchestra. It's actually just a small group out of the orchestra. And it's a tune that the Henderson Band recorded as an instrumental a little bit later. It was a tune composed by W.C. Handy, and it's called The Gouge of Armor Avenue. And the Henderson Band recording uh, was not terribly interesting. It uh, had some some enthusiasm to it, I guess, but this recording with Faye Barnes is really, uh, as the notes say in the CD that I took it from, a showstopper, a vaudeville showstopper. You can imagine uh, high-kicking dancers and all that, um, and it sounds like a much bigger band, but it really isn't. Uh, the band is apparently Howard Scott, who was playing the jazz trumpet for Fletcher Henderson at this point. This was recorded in June of 1924, so about um, three or four months before Louis Armstrong joined the band. So Howard Scott was really the chief jazz player at that point. Teddy Nixon was the trombone player. Don Redmond plays reeds, clarinet and alto sax, Fletcher Henderson on piano, and Charlie Dixon on banjo. And it certainly sounds like the Maggie Jones from her um, acknowledged recordings from around the same time. So we're going to put this down as a definite. So we're going to start with that recording. Then we're going to jump over to a more traditional blues recording uh, called the Boxcar Blues, which she recorded with Charlie Green on trombone and Fletcher Henderson on piano. This was uh, done for... Uh, what label was that done for? I should mention the Gouge of Armor Avenue was actually done for uh, the Paramount Company, and Boxcar Blues was for Columbia. Columbia was one of the big uh, recording companies of the time, so uh, she must have impressed the Columbia executives. Frank Walker was the fellow who was making Bessie Smith's recordings at the time, and I think he was instrumental in hiring most of the other blues singers as well. So, that uh, version of Boxcar Blues, as I said, with Charlie Green and Fletcher Henderson from November of 1924. Then we're going to jump ahead and hear two recordings that were made in June of 1926 for Columbia. Cheatin' on Me and Mama. Don't, uh, excuse me, Mama, Won't You Come and Mama Me. It was actually published as Papa, Won't You Come and Papa Me, but the gender was changed on that. And that was accompanied by Henderson's Hot Six. So we're going to talk a little bit about that after we listen. So, four tunes now. The Gouge of Armor Avenue, Boxcar Blues, Cheatin' on Me, and Mama. <laughs> Along that way, she must have been 
Faye Barnes? We'll see if we think that was indeed her on the first tune. It sounds like her to me. Anyway, we ended up with two tunes, Cheatin' on Me and Mama. Um, won't you Mama, Mama Me? And that last tune was composed by, of all people, Seeger Ellis, who uh, led a band in the 1930s and late 30s and 40s. Uh, he also was a piano player and a crooner. Louis Armstrong accompanied him on a very unusual recording date. Uh, about 1929 or so, and he was a songwriter as well, and that was one of his. Before that was Cheatin' on Me, which was composed by Lou Pollock and Jack Yellen. And uh, two popular tunes. Uh, a little bit unusual for two popular tunes to be sung by someone who was being marketed as a blues singer, and Maggie Jones, of course, was being marketed that way. But this particular recording date from June 12th of 1926 is interesting because it was the second part of a trial date that Columbia was doing uh, to initiate its electric recording process. Before that, recordings had been made into the horn. The, you know, think of the RCA logo with Nipper looking into that horn. That was how recordings were made. Uh, musicians were grouped around a, a horn of a bigger size, and the louder instruments put in the back, the quieter instruments in the front, and the singer given prominence. So the fidelity was not so great. It had a sort of a tubby, muffled sound, but then with the introduction of electrical recording using microphones in 1925 or so, uh, the uh, fidelity and the quality of the recording was, of course, much more pronounced. And this was the second session that Columbia did. Earlier, I think the same day or within a day or so, Bessie Smith had been recorded 
doing two tunes, uh, The Cakewalking Babies and Yellow Dog Blues. The first session was done uh, uh, with the uh, attempt to make Cakewalking Babies, and uh, they did get one usable take out of it, which was issued before uh, tragedy ensued, and the tent that the engineers had rigged up in the studio to cover the musicians and the singer to blot out the extraneous noise because the microphones were a lot more sensitive than the horns were, that tent collapsed and uh, a whole scene of pandemonium ensued with Bessie Smith venting her rage on the engineers, the musicians, the tent, the microphone, and everything else, and that was it for that session. They did come back the next day and do Yellow Dog Blues, and I believe it was the same time that Maggie Jones came in and recorded Cheatin' On Me and Mama, and with the same group, by the way, Henderson's Hot Six. So it was Fletcher Henderson on piano and uh, Charlie Dixon on banjo. Uh, we may have Ralph Escudero on tuba in there. He's a little hard to hear, but he's possibly there, definitely there on the Bessie Smith sides. Then we also had Joe Smith on cornet. We heard him on a solo on Mama. Charlie Green on trombone, and Buster Bailey on clarinet. Uh, on the Bessie Smith sides, there were two reeds. Coleman Hawkins also played some clarinet. There were a couple of places where there were two clarinets to be heard. Not so much on these, though. So that was Henderson's Hot Six with uh, Maggie Jones. Before that, we heard the Boxcar Blues, which was a more traditional blues performance. That was a tune by Spencer Williams that Maggie Jones recorded in... Uh, November of 1924, and featuring the trombone of Charlie Green, uh, who was one of the most prolific blues accompanists of the day. Uh, blues singers prized his accompaniment style very highly. He uh, knew how to stay out of the way of the voice, but his vocalized qualities on trombone really matched the singers very, very well, and we heard that there on uh, the Boxcar Blues, which celebrates, of course, trains and mentions Texas, uh, Maggie Jones' home state, so we had a bit of uh, local color in there as well. That was Charlie Green with Fletcher Henderson on piano. And we started out with the Gouge of Armor Avenue, uh, and that featured a, a slightly earlier version of the Fletcher Henderson band. As I said, that was from June of 1924, featured Howard Scott on trumpet, or cornet probably, Teddy Nixon on trombone, Don Redman on reeds, and then Fletcher Henderson on piano, and Charlie Dixon on banjo. And I had no idea what gouge meant in this context, and I looked up a couple of sources. Apparently, W.C. Handy, when he wrote that tune, and a uh, an accompanying tune, which Maggie Jones also recorded on the same date, called the Chicago Gouge, it uh, was an attempt to invent a dance. And dance uh, songs were very important, songs that describe dance. You think back to Ball and the Jack and things like that. And W.C. Handy was uh, trying to uh, start a new movement in dance, and this was uh, aimed at the Chicago markets, Chicago South Side, and it was supposed to rhyme with Scrouge. Scrouge apparently had something to do with an intimate dance, and so the gouge was what brought the couple in the song together. The woman was complaining, but she came around to the man's way of thinking because he taught her the gouge. So read into that what you will. Uh, the Fletcher Henderson Band recorded, as I said, a dance band version of that tune a bit slower uh, a couple of months later, right before Louis Armstrong joined the band, and it featured Charlie Green, who had replaced Teddy Nixon in the band at that point. 
And it was an unusual recording in that it was uh, the tune that we heard, but there was a long section in the middle that was given over to Charlie Green to play on a minor vamp. Uh, it's considered almost an early version of modal jazz, and we can hear in it the, the uh, predecessor to Louis Armstrong's King of the Zulus from a few years later, and uh, really didn't have anything to do with the tune. One wonders why they introduced that, but it's a very effective solo vehicle for Charlie Green's trombone. Well, we're going to move on now to the next couple of sessions that Maggie Jones did with members, or particularly a member of the Fletcher Henderson Orchestra. This uh, followed the uh, Boxcar Blues uh, pretty directly. The Boxcar Blues was from November 13th. This next session we're going to hear comes from December 9th of 1924 for Columbia Recordings, and it features Maggie Jones with Fletcher Henderson on piano and Louis Armstrong on cornet. And as I said, these were some of the recordings that Louis looked back on later in life very fondly, and when he heard them, he was actually quite proud of them. You can read that in a couple of the biographies of Louis Armstrong. So the first one we're going to hear is arguably the best. It's called the Poorhouse Blues, and then we're going to go on to three more. There were about six or seven of them all together, and we're going to take my four favorite. The Poorhouse Blues, then a vaudeville novelty song, comedy song with uh, double entendre called Anybody Here Want to Try My Cabbage from December 10th of 1924, and its session mate, the Thunderstorm Blues. Then we're going to end up with the Good Time Flat Blues, December 17th, 1924. All of these feature Louis Armstrong on cornet and Fletcher Henderson on piano, accompanying Maggie Jones. Ha, 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 ha,
first tune was called the Poor House Blues. That was composed by Spencer Williams. Spencer Williams was a very prolific composer of blues tunes and blues-like tunes in New York uh, during the early to middle 1920s. He was from New Orleans and uh, composed quite a lot of jazz standards as well. Poor House Blues did not ascend to the rank of jazz standard, but uh, we have a nice plaintive performance there with Maggie Jones uh, expressing concerned for the wagon coming to take her away because she can't pay her rent. You know, typical blues performance that way. And some very nice Louis Armstrong plunger muted uh, accompaniment as well. Typically on these recordings when he accompanied blues singers, he used just a straight mute, which he did on the other uh, sides that we listened to. But once in a while, he would play a plunger muted uh, accompaniment, as he did on a couple of Bessie Smith uh, recordings as well, and we can kind of hear the echoes of New Orleans when he does that and how he learned that technique from King Oliver. He always said that Oliver was his mentor and he learned more from him about mutes and playing and so on and so forth. Another great uh, or well-known New Orleans trumpeter, Mutt Carey, said that he learned quite a bit from King Oliver playing with mutes as well. So we follow that up with, has anybody here, does anybody here want to try my cabbage, a uh, vaudeville Comedy tune, double, single entendre, whatever you like. Uh, culinary metaphors for uh, the intimacy that we are, 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 are 
coming to expect from the blues performances of this time. This particular uh, recording, which was done in 1924, actually would have sounded less out of place in the later 1920s, when blues singers were going to more naughty material. Bessie Smith recorded the Kitchen Man Blues, and uh, uh, I Need a Little Hot Dog for My Roll, and things like that. Those were... Uh, a little more common in the late 20s, but here we have this tune that was composed by Fats Waller, Andy Razeff, and Edgar Dowell. I don't know if it was for a show or not, um, but it was a tune that didn't become terribly popular, but a very interesting recording, including a Louis Armstrong solo at one point along there. We all know about Andy Razeff and Fats Waller. Edgar Dowell was a composer and lyricist, and I think he was a pianist as well, who was responsible for tunes like Of All the Wrongs You've Done For Me, done to me, rather, and uh, that Dada strain, and uh, a number of tunes that were popular in the early 1920s. Then we went on to a little bit of a novelty number, the Thunderstorm Blues, and uh, that was composed again by Spencer Williams and also Arthur Ray, who was a pretty well-known uh, pianist and blues accompanist at the time as well. And we finished up with the Good Time Flat Blues, talking about a, uh, a good time flat, which was probably a combination speakeasy, brothel, whatever, uh, in New Orleans, uh, at, uh, this song goes anyway, and how the proprietress of that establishment was not able to pay her rent, she wasn't getting enough customers, and how she was going to close up shop. And Louis Armstrong comments throughout that, and also has a very effective solo towards the end. So that's Maggie Jones and some of the recordings that Louis Armstrong was so uh, enamored of in later career. He rated those as superior to even his Bessie Smith accompaniments, which is an interesting uh, perspective given what we've come to uh, think of Louis Armstrong and his recordings of the 1920s. We're going to listen to three more Maggie Jones tunes from the late or the later 1920s. And again, she uh, had left the vaudeville circuit along about 1926. She went into some of the Broadway and, and near-Broadway shows that were open to African-American entertainers in the later 1920s. She uh, was with Lou Leslie's Blackbirds in 1928. She had sung with the Hall Johnson Choir in 1927. Uh, the Hall Johnson Choir made an appearance in the Bessie Smith film, St. Louis Blues, in 1929. I don't know if she was part of that or not. I have no idea. We know that she returned to Texas in the early 1930s, presumably because the Depression had robbed many entertainers of their way of making a living. And she opened a clothing store, and she did some review work and some uh, entertaining in the Fort Worth area. And uh, that's the last we know of Maggie Jones. We don't know when she passed on or if she... Uh, ever toured it all again, but uh, we have these recordings which fill out about two CDs worth of material of the things that she did under her own name and also under the name of Faye Barnes, whether that was her real name or just a stage name. Again, we don't know. We're going to hear three tunes now. The Dallas Blues uh, by Hart Wand. This was uh, a recording that she did, Maggie Jones did, in 1925, I believe. And that it features the clarinet of Bob Fuller, who could be a little hard to take at times. He could be a kind of a squeaky player, but here he comes off very effectively, actually. And he is accompanied by Louis Hooper on piano and Elmer Snowden on banjo. Then we're going to hear another tune called Never uh, Tell... Uh, i got to get the right title here. Never Tell a Woman Friend, that's what it is. And it's the same band, except Elmer Snowden apparently doubles on tenor sax, or possibly C-melody sax, 
Uh, it was originally thought to have been a different player, but uh, some notes that I've read about the sessions point out that Elmer Snowden was a saxophone player, even in his own bands. He was much better known as a banjo player. And at no point in these recordings can you hear a saxophone, the second saxophone and the banjo playing simultaneously, which is a pretty uh, good uh, piece of reasoning. These were recorded for Columbia, Never Tell a Woman Friend from September 29th of 1925, and The Dallas Blues from September 17th of 1925. Maggie Jones with Louis Hooper, Elmer Snowden, and Bob Fuller on clarinet. Then we're going to end up our Maggie Jones tribute here with a tune called He's Just a Horn Tootin' Fool, which uh, she recorded in June of 1925, not too long after the um, uh, recordings that she did uh, with the Henderson Hot Six. In fact, apparently the same day, if we believe that, but with just an entirely different band. Um, it is, in fact, a white band. The St. Louis Rhythm Kings, Mickey Bloom on trumpet, Pete Pelezzi on trombone, Louis Maisto on clarinet, Nick Maleri on piano, and Christian Maisto on drums. A little bit different. Uh, one wonders what the whole reasoning of, of dividing these sessions up for these first uh, electric recordings was. But at any rate, she will be singing, She's just a he's just a horn tootin' fool. So those are our three numbers. Um, Dallas Blues, Never Tell a Woman Friend, and He's Just a Horn Tootin' Fool.
Ah! Uh-huh. 
So there were three tunes that uh, show a little bit of range. Clearly, Maggie Jones, in addition to being a very convincing blues singer, uh, was also a good actress and vaudeville singer as well. So we started out with the Dallas Blues, a blues that went back to the very early days of blues publications. One of the first uh, it predated the W.C. Handy Memphis Blues. It was by Hart Wand, and it was called the Dallas Blues. And that featured Bob Fuller on clarinet with Louis Hooper on piano and Elmer uh, Snowden on banjo. Following that, we had the same group uh, doing a tune called Never Tell a Woman Friend. And this, again, was by Edgar Dowell uh, with Henry Troy as the lyricist. And they apparently were a songwriting team in the early 20s. They did a few things um, here and there. One was called The Broken Busted Can't Be Trusted Blues, which a number of blues singers recorded at that point. And uh, that uh, gives some humorous lyrics as well, a little bit of irony, perhaps. And then we ended up with He's Just a Horn Tootin' Fool by Henry Bussey and Ross Gorman, who were both members of the Paul Whiteman band at that point. And somehow uh, Maggie Jones was selected to record that. And I'd said that was the same date as the uh, Henderson Hot Six recordings. It was actually a month later. The, those were done in May of 1925. And this Horn Tootin' Fool was done with the St. Louis Rhythm uh, Kings in June of 19. And the St. Louis Rhythm Kings, as I mentioned, uh, the personnel there, they're actually an offshoot of the original Indiana Five without the leader, uh, Tom Morton, the drummer, and a couple of other different people in there. But Mickey Bloom, the trumpet player, Pete Polizzi, the trombone player, uh, Nick Malari on piano, and occasionally Louis Maisto on clarinet were part of the original Indiana Five, which was one of the early jazz recording groups. They followed on the heels of the original uh, uh, Dixieland Jazz Band, and you know they came out about the same time as the original Memphis Five as well. These were all, or the Memphis Five and the Indiana Five were both New York-based groups, and they existed largely to make recordings, although I think in the case of the Indiana Five, they did appear on vaudeville stages as well. There's quite a lot of recordings out of them. Most of them are based on stock arrangements of the day. So there we have Maggie Jones, a.k.a. Faye Barnes, and some very fine, if little-known, blues recordings of the 1920s. Hope you've enjoyed our little trip into that little corner of the classic blues era. Again, my name is John Clark. We are called The Jazz Focus, and hope you keep tuning back in for podcasts that will be coming. Oh, I don't know. I usually wait till I have four ready to go, and then I'll put them on. So every month or so, or every couple of weeks, depending on how busy I am, I'll probably put another four up there and keep adding to them as well. We have another one coming out very soon, uh, having to do with the Anaconda Jazz Band, which is, uh, was a traditional jazz band from France in the 1970s. So we hope you keep tuning.